0: Good morning, Hayden Bible Church. Did you sleep well last night? Well, that's good because I'm going to need you to focus this morning. We'll be uh, looking at the passage of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is filled with theology. Theology. And so I'm going to need you to stay focused so we can get through it. Yeah, there's a lot here. It could be actually three sermons, but I wanted to cover the whole thing. So we'll be giving it a light dusting this morning. Ephesians 2:10, or 2:1 through 10, is familiar to all of us. And it's our gospel story, if you will, in a nutshell. It's the shorthand version of the gospel in the life of the believer. It's personal, and it's every believer's story. It was the story of Paul and the apostles. It was the story of Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. It was the story of Spurgeon, Edwards, Whitfield, Sproul, and MacArthur. It's the story of all the giants of the faith. Past and present. And it's your story, and it's mine. It's the story of all who have put their faith, their saving faith, in the person and work of Jesus Christ by God's predetermined grace. It's the story of one born in sin and radically fallen, a God hater and a sin lover. We look at what the world is selling. The flesh desires and the devil is telling us. And we want it all. We have no defense against this onslaught of evil. We don't want to defend against it. Because in our sinful natures, we relish it. We love it. Many Christians today don't believe they are radically fallen. Some don't even think they're sinners. They don't need good news. They just need an adjustment. They need some good advice or assistance, and they'll be fine. They don't need a savior. They just need suitable suggestions to be a good person. The real sinners are the ones that you see on the TV every night, but not me. Some in the Christian community have not come yet to the reality of just how far they've fallen, how radical and complete the fall has been in Adam. Simply put, they don't believe it. Let's read our passage today, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead. I like to pause there just for a second. And I want you to think what in your own mind what the characteristics of deadness is. What it means to be dead. And they were and you are dead in the trespasses and sins that is spiritually dead in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air which is Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is the reprobate or the unbeliever. Among whom we all. Once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God. i like to pause there too because this is a a pivotal point for this passage. Not only is it a pivotal point for this passage, but one could argue that it is the pivotal point for the entire Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the inerrant and infallible word of Almighty God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you humbly today, asking your grace by your Spirit to open our ears and eyes that we might see the truth of your grace and your mercy in this passage. Help us to understand our fallenness and our need for a Savior the Savior you provided in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This passage can be divided into three parts. Ruin, redemption, and responsibility. Ruin in verses 1 through 3. Redemption in 4 through 9. And our responsibility in verse 10. So let's begin with ruin it begins with the human condition doesn't it we are in ruin radically fallen more radically fallen than we care to believe rabbi harold kushner wrote a book entitled why bad things happen to good people many of in this room may have asked that very same question never realizing that that statement has a false premise. Did you catch it? There are no good people. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The problem is many Christians don't believe that. No one doesn't mean almost someone. It doesn't mean mostly no one. It doesn't mean even someone. It's a universal negative and it includes everyone, past, present, and future. But people don't believe the Bible. Oh, they believe in the Bible. They just don't believe the Bible. Paul is merely restating here a biblical truth from the Old Testament, isn't he? Psalm 14, 1 through 3 says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They all have turned aside. Together they have been corrupt. There is not one who does good, not even one. So the Lord's looked down on millions and millions of people, and he can't find even one who does good. Does that tell you how far mankind has fallen? In orthodox theology, we have what we call the doctrine of original sin, which states that as a result of Adam's first sin, the guilt and corruption of mankind, of all men, has been passed down to his posterity. The doctrine of original sin is not the first sin, but it is the result of the first sin. Romans 5.12 states this. Therefore, here we have an apostolic conclusion, don't we, from Paul. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Every human being that has ever been born has been born in sin. Except for the first two. David writes in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. Now he's not saying here that his mother was an adulteress. What he's talking about is the doctrine of original sin. Most everyone in here, or many of you in here anyway... Our parents are grandparents. And so we've seen little babies. And how many of us have looked at those little babies and said, Oh, isn't he or she a little angel? <laughs> well, Dr. Vodibakum disagrees with that. He says little babies are not little angels, what they are is a viper and a diaper. And the only reason God made them so small is so they won't kill you. (laughs) And the only reason God made them so cute is so you won't kill them. (laughs) We all know that you don't have to teach a child how to throw a temper tantrum, it comes in the package. They let you know very early in life, when they can't even lift their head up on their own, who's in charge. You do, however, have to teach them discipline, don't we? How to behave. Time, patience, and self-control is the investment we make. Some preachers, like Joel Olstein, refuse to admit that people sin. They say they just make mistakes or bad choices. Well, I'm here to tell you, dear friends, that we're sinners and we sin. Some have defined sin as the lack of self-esteem, a la Robert Schuller. Still others have denied that sin or evil even exists, like the founder of Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy. Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as the want of the lack of conformity to or the transgression of the law of God. In other words, it is rebellion against the laws and commandments of Almighty God. It's not just a mistake. It's not a bad choice, a lack of self-esteem. God considers sin serious business serious enough to crucify his one and only son. Martin Luther famously said, "We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners." The love of sin is in our DNA, at the very heart of our sinful natures. I think we can all agree that in Adam sin and in Adam's sin we're fallen in our Sinful nature has an inclination or a propensity towards sin. Well, the question in Christian orthodoxy has always been just how fallen? Are we truly dead in our sins or just mostly dead? How many of you know we're not mostly dead? What you are, spiritually speaking, is a rotting corpse in desperate need of a Savior. The Reformers and the Puritans believe that we are totally, completely depraved in our whole being, body, mind, soul, and spirit. Arminians and Roman Catholics have said that we're only mostly dead. And we have a spiritual island of righteousness that allows us to do what only God can do. Let me explain to you spiritual rebirth this way. The Armenian, the Roman Catholic, and the semi-Pelagian view, basically all grouped together the same, say that you're drowning in a lake. You're going down for the third time. And a boat pulls up next to you, and somebody throws you a life preserver. You know the round ones with the ropes around, looped around the outside. And this life preserver floats up next to your fingertips as you're going down for the third time. The only thing that's above the water is your hand. The rope touches your fingertips. You grab onto it, and you're saved. How many of you know that's fiction? Because the scripture says you're spiritually dead, not mostly dead. The biblical view is different. It says you're already dead, a lifeless corpse at the bottom of the lake. The Holy Spirit goes down to the bottom of the lake, grabs onto you, drags you up to dry land, and he breathes life into you. Amen. That's what it means for the God of the Bible to save you. And we'll see that in verse 4 when we get there. Dead people don't do anything. Since we are indeed spiritually dead, we cannot save ourselves. It is impossible. Jesus says as much in John 6, and again in verse 65, but we're going to concentrate on verse 44, where he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. We all know that verse, don't we? But let's look at it a little more closely. Let's parse it for a minute. No one is a universal negative. It doesn't leave anyone out. It excludes no one and includes everyone. The word can has to do with ability. No one can or no one has the ability to come to me unless... Unless what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. After the, the... When we see an unless, we have an acceptive clause. And there's always a necessary condition that follows an acceptive clause. So the necessary condition here is that the Father must draw him or her, correct? Well, the Greek word for draw is helco. It's better translated to compel or to drag. It's a strong word. It's not a wooing. It's not a persuading negotiation. It's the same word used in Acts 16 and 19, where Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace by the authorities in Philippi. So how does this dragging or drawing take place? One must be regenerated. Spiritually reborn. Born again. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles, if you have them in front of you, or you can see it on the screen. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Now stay with me here. I want you to notice... That in this passage, it's first person. God is talking to his people. God explains here, is explaining here to his people how are they regenerated. How that happens. Listen to what he says. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, that is the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. Beloved, this is what it means to be born again to be regenerated, to be quickened. Who does this? God does this. It is the monergistic work of Almighty God, and that's a word that you should learn. It comes from two Greek words, mono meaning one or only, and ergasia, which means work. It's one work. It's God's work. He does that work. He regenerates you. It's not a synergistic work like sanctification. This is God's work alone. This agrees perfectly, by the way, with what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, we must be born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. We'll take a look at that in a minute. We were born children of the devil. There's only two kinds of people, children of God and children of the devil, and we're all born children of the devil. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. We followed Lucifer, the prince of the power of the air. We were worldly with a spirit of disobedience and lived in the passions of our flesh and carried out the desires of our flesh like everyone else. We were children of wrath, not children of God. We became children of God through Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26, and 27 that we just read. By God's grace. Turn with me now to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Follow me really closely here. He says, but as many as received him. doesn't say as many as accepted him. I think that's arrogance. As many as received him. He To them he gave the right, the exousia, the, the, the authority, the power to become children of God. So if we become children of God, that means we were something else before that. We were children of the devil before that. We become children of God, it says. Even to those who believe on his name. Now, follow this really closely. Who were born not of blood, or some translations say of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, some versions say of human decision, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here again, it's God that does this. Al ekfeu, it's a genitive, it's in the genitive sense, it's of God. How can God say this with any more clarity and simplicity? I don't know. Man doesn't do it, God does it. Do you not know that you have as much to do with your spiritual rebirth? As you did with your physical birth. Which is absolutely nothing. If you did, you would have something of which to boast. Do you see that? I mean, it's, it's obvious. Skip ahead now to John chapter 3. Verses 3 through 8. Let's look at that briefly. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, there we have an accepted clause again, unless one is born again. Literally, that's translated, born from above. One must be born from above, or he cannot, that means he is not able to, see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And what does Jesus say? He answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, here we have another accepted clause, don't we? Unnecessary conditions coming up. One is born of water and the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. We just read that in Ezekiel 36. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit, capital S, is spirit, small s. In other words, physical birth is one thing and spiritual rebirth is quite another. A sinful human nature can only produce another sinful human nature. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one, Job 14.4. Only God, the Holy Spirit, produces the sanctified human nature. Jesus continues. Now this is really important, so listen up here. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone. Who is born of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit? The sovereign character of regeneration is clarified by this illustration taken from the action of the wind. No one on this planet can direct the wind, it's completely independent, its source and its ultimate destination are unknown. And so it is, Jesus says, with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can only feel the wind against your body. You can't control it. The relation of the wind to your body resembles the Spirit to your soul. The wind does as it pleases. And so does the Holy Spirit. His operation is sovereign, incomprehensible, and mysterious. Nicodemus wants to know how he can be born again. And Jesus says to him, it's not up to you. It's up to the Holy Spirit. What a lesson this was for a man like Nicodemus. Think about it. He'd been brought up in the belief That a person could and should save himself by perfect obedience to the law of Moses and a host of other human regulations. If that were true, he would indeed have something of which to boast. How difficult it must be for people to unlearn what they've always believed. How about us? Do we have to unlearn what we've always believed? Are we ready to go wherever the truth of Scripture takes us? Have we always believed that we were responsible for our own salvation, a choice we made alone, standing on our own island of righteousness? Or is it just possible that we were chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world, like it says in Ephesians 1.4? Marinate in that for a while. Because that's what the Bible says. I'm just the messenger. It's been well said that there are five dimensions to being born spiritually dead. First, it's universal. All of mankind are walking dead and children of God's wrath. Second, it's an act of rebellion against God. Third, we are all born children of the devil. Fourth, it brings with it an utter inability to do anything about itself, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 7, which says, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God... For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And fifth, it invites the wrath of God. So how do we get out of this mess we find ourselves in? Well, God's provided that answer in Redemption. Let's look at the text again. Verse 4 and 5 says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But God, this pivotal point that we talked about, being rich in his mercy... It's all about what God does. Theologians call this the divine initiative because God does it. It goes right back to Ezekiel 36, 26 again. God gets the glory. He made us alive in Christ through his gracious love for us. Even when we were spiritually dead toward him, I want you to feel the weight of that on your soul this morning. Think about it. He did this glorious thing for you and for me. uh, Jesus said in, in John 6 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will in no wise cast any away. Let me say again that you have as much to do with your spiritual rebirth as you did with your physical birth. It comes only always and forever through God's merciful, loving grace towards you, the elect in Christ. Do you believe this? Because this is what the Bible says. Do you believe the Bible? That's the issue. God loves his people for no other reason than he chooses to do so. Certainly not because of any virtue inherent in us. It says, by grace you have been saved in verse 5. Men and women caught in the web of death outlined in verses 1 through 3 have no means of making themselves alive. Breaking away from their slavery to Satan and sin, or avoiding the wrath of God. Paul insists that God Himself brings the walking dead to life and offers God's own love as the ground for doing so. Paul excluded any consideration of merit, effort, or ability on the part of those who become alive. Now, listen closely to this because I'm not going to repeat it, but it's a little bit hard sometimes to grasp. The hopeless condition of sinners apart from Christ that he outlined in verses 1 through 3 is the presupposition for the understanding of his teaching on God's election that we see in chapter 1, verse 4 to 6 of Ephesians and on his sovereign, loving gift of life that we see in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Not only have you been saved, you've been raised up, it says, with him in heavenly places. There's a certain sense where even now, because we, believers, are united with Christ in a kind of spiritual resurrection that we have been raised up with him and seated with Christ in heaven. It's an already and not yet kind of thing. Being made alive, being raised up, being seated in the heavenly places are historical events in the life of Christ. Paul applies them to what has happened to believers. This union with Christ is such That what is said of the Redeemer can be said of the redeemed. What happened to Jesus will one day happen to us, and we will be resurrected bodily to glory. Amen? For now, however, we have a new mind, a new heart, a new spirit, a new identity in Christ. And a new ability to live free from Satan and sin. Not perfectly, obviously, but we're being sanctified even now by God's grace, working through the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. We are no longer slaves to sin, but to Christ. There's a parallel experience within the inner person. 2 Corinthians 4:16 reads this way, therefore we do not lose heart but though the outer man is decaying yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. Amen. So why did God do all this? Well, let's look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, God might show us the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verse 22 through 24. While you're doing that, I'm going to read that again. So that in the coming ages, God might show us the riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Romans nine twenty two to 24 says this. What if God, desiring to show in Deiknami, to to put on display, to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience... Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the reprobate, the unbeliever. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy. That's you and me. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called. That is the elect. Not from the Jews only, but from the gentiles also you see this is all for god's everlasting glory grace is defined as unmerited favor right well here mercy is defined as not getting something we deserve in this case everlasting punishment in hell for our sin against a god who is holy 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 This is not just ordinary grace, dear friends. This is an amazing, uncommon grace. Think about it. God is sovereign. Amen? Amen. When were you predestined in Christ? The scripture says, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Though for us the reality of that is realized in real time and space when we're regenerated or born again, made alive by God the Holy Spirit. Do you understand this? Because this is is a jaw-dropping grace. It's unimaginable. It's bewildering. It's an unspeakable grace. And God himself is doing this for you and me. God does all this so that in the future he might show believers the untold riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. Now if you're still struggling with this, let's take a look at verses 8 and 9. This all happens for God's glory. He wants to put his grace on display by saving us through his gift of faith in the person and work of his Son, whom he also graciously sent to do what the first Adam failed to do, and then to die in our place so that we might live. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. You can't do it. God gets the glory. By His grace, He gives us faith in Christ. And since God gives us faith as a free gift, that means we don't choose it. We don't seek it. We merely receive it. If we think for a New York second that we had anything to do with With our salvation. Other than the need of it. And exercising the faith. Given to us by God. As a gift. Then we don't rightly understand the gospel. We're saved from God. By God. For God. He saves us from ourselves. From his wrath. And from eternal hell. How many of you know that God is under no obligation to save anyone? There's nothing he saw in us that deserves his mercy. He didn't, in his omniscience, look down through a corridor of time and learn anything. His foreknow- foreknowledge in, in Romans eight twenty nine is not foresight. The context here to foreknow is to forelove. In Hebrew thought, to know someone is to have an intimate relationship with them or to love them. Genesis 4.1 says this, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. In Romans 8.29 because those whom he foreknew or foreloved he also predestined it says this is the same language that we see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 where it says in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will I hope you see that because it's the key to understanding the passage. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone that has been given to us from God alone. Let's look at these verses again. We should all have these memorized probably. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. And God gets the glory. What's the antecedent of that? Faith. Faith, in fact, both faith and grace are undeserved gifts from God. You can't earn them. If you could earn them by doing something, then you would have something of which to boast about. We should be praising God every day for having received as a gift, not only salvation that comes through faith alone, but the gift of faith itself. R.C. Sproul made a statement that in the 16th century, you're probably familiar with the Roman Catholic counter-reformation, the Council of Trent. He said, Rome anathematized the gospel. What he means there is uh, anathematized comes from the Greek word anatema, which means to, to curse or to damn. So he's saying that Rome cursed the gospel. And he's right. Indeed, they did. At the center of orthodoxy, we have the essential doctrine, the non-negotiable doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Without that, there is no gospel. Now at Trent, in Session 6, Canon 9 and 12, among others, they rejected sola fide, faith alone. Luther said, this is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Calvin said, it is the hinge upon which the Christian religion turns. So let's look at that. It should be on the screen. Session 6, the Council of Treks, should be Canon 9, the first one, it says, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain grace of justification, and that it is that not in any way necessary that he be prepared or disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Canon 12 says, if anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than the confidence in the divine mercy, pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. That should shock you. That's still evident and in play today in Roman Catholicism. Beloved, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Period. Those are five solas that are entrenched in historical Christian orthodoxy. You should all have them memorized. As I said before, people don't think they need to be saved. They just need a little help to go from death to life. From the prince of the power of the air to the prince of peace. From the world to heavenly places. But we are all in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know how messed up we are. We don't know what we don't know. We need our souls regenerated, our hearts changed, and our minds renewed by the triune God of the Bible. Now we need to be careful... You've often heard the admonition be of the world, the flesh and the devil, because of the pressure and the influence that sin unleashes upon the soul from every side. We're surrounded by evil, and not just evil, but massive evil. It's everywhere, all the time. If we're not careful, we can still listen to the devil, be influenced by the world, and give in to our fleshly desires. Even after conversion, the sin, of, the stain of sin, remains. It remains constant struggle for the Christian against the flesh. Like Paul in Romans chapter seven, there's a civil war going on inside us. But we can remember that we're no longer slaves to sin. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, what's our responsibility in all of this? Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand That we should do what? Walk in them. It's important to remember that works don't save you. Works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of it. Works of obedience give evidence that we indeed have been saved. James says in chapter 2, verse 17, that faith without works is dead. And so it is. It's useless, he says in verse 20. True saving faith always and necessarily produces works of obedience. Martin Luther said that we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It's important to remember that all faith is not saving faith. Even the demons believe and shudder. Verse 19 of James. True saving faith will immediately and necessarily show itself through works of obedience. We need to check ourselves. Are are we doing works of obedience for the kingdom? So when James says in verse 24, You see... That word see, with your eyes, see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's what he's talking about. We can't see a man's faith. But we can see the works of obedience that give evidence of that faith. For example, Abraham was justified before God in Genesis 15. When the scripture says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified before God by faith alone. He was saved by faith alone. But then seven chapters later in chapter 22. Abraham's faith was made evident to men through his obedience. He was justified as it were before men. When his faith was put on display and tested so that men could see it. Sacrificing Isaac was no small test of his faith. It required a deep and abiding faith by Abraham. So we see in verse 10 that God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. If we're in Christ, we're created for good works... And those good works are to be done for the kingdom, for the growth of the kingdom. We're to use the gifts that God has given us by His grace and blessed us with in order to grow the kingdom and glorify Him. These good works, I am convinced, were prepared beforehand at the same time before the foundation of the world when He ordained us the elect. In Christ. Ephesians 1 4. Ephesians 1 4 reads this way It says, Just as God, or He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He, God, predestined us as sons by Jesus Christ. Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in Christ. So that begs the question Are you going to walk in them? Because that's what created us to do. The Greek word for walk is peripateo. It means to regulate one's life or to conduct oneself, to actually live in them. Are we ready to do that? Remember that in a certain sense, we were saved before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. As I said before, that had to come into fruition in real time and space of creation. But we were ordained for that in eternity past. And God did this in his omniscience. Now get this. God does this in his omniscience, knowing everything, right? Including all your junk. While you were dead in your sins, still in your junk, in your stuff, he made you alive in Christ. Don't just hear that or consider that. Meditate on it and believe that. Think deeply about it because to understand that is the beginning, just the beginning of understanding God's amazing grace. We must live in the Word. We must cultivate our minds with the nourishment of the Word in order to renew our minds that we might live daily, righteously before God. If we feed our minds with the garbage... And fertilize our sinful nature with the manure of this world, it's going to be ner- nearly impossible for us to mortify our sin. You cannot kill sin, the sin in your life, by feeding and watering it constantly with the compost of this world. We need desperately the miracle grow. Of God's word directing our lives. We need to be nourished by the word. We need to grow in the word. We need to live in the word. To carry out the works that God has prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. The scripture says. I have stored up your word in my heart. That I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, Augustine said, there is a hole in the heart of every human being that only God can fill. (laughs) Let the word of God and God himself fill the hole that's in your heart today. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is our gospel story, proclaimed in scripture with clarity and simplicity to the glory of God. Let yourself soak in that gospel reality this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear. We can take no responsibility for your grace. Else we would rob you of your glory. Help us, Father, to understand and to believe the truth of this passage. It's difficult when we have believed for years something contrary to this. Help us to see that truth, believe that truth, to bathe in that truth, to, to embrace that truth, to love that truth because it's your truth. Indeed, all truth is your truth. We thank you, Lord, for this time. Go now with each one throughout this week, as we dwell on this scripture and we mull it over in our minds and meditate on it, that we may come to an everlasting understanding of your glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name for his sake.